to this. You know what? And in the ring with Dan and Benny, hey, brother, man, hey, he's about the most cat. I just love him to death. I love you. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're the best. I'm telling you, brother, in the ring with Dan and Benny. Yeah. We love you. Thank Woo. you so much, Dan. Oh, yeah. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spashion, and joined, as always, by the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. Benny, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing good, Dan. I do want to send out a, a special birthday shout-out to my youngest son, Chris, who uh, turned 29 today, and uh, we were chatting earlier, and I said that because he's aging forward and uh, I have the, the Benjamin Button thing going on, that uh, next year he's going to be older than I am. And I also do have some uh, breaking news or, uh, from our sponsor, uh, Boogie's Wrestling Camp and Hall of Fame Museum. They're going to be launching a wrestling live from BWC show twice monthly, and it's going to feature defenses of the newly created BWC Heavyweight Championship uh, with a shiny new belt to boot. And stay tuned for further details. Pretty excited about that, though. Yeah, absolutely. Any Anything related to wrestling that comes out of the Boogie's Camp or anything related to wrestling that even pretends that it's going to get near Jimmy Valiant is always good stuff. Solid gold. Well, speaking of, Hall, of Wrestling Hall of Fame, Benny, why don't you tell everybody who we got on the phone with us tonight? So, so many of our guests, I'd say they're slashes, and this gentleman is no exception. So he's like a wrestling collector, slash historian, slash promoter, and oh yeah, a doctor as well, and the former chairman of the uh, selection committee for the International uh, Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame. Very pleased to have Dr. Bob Bryla uh, as our guest. Dr. Bob, welcome to Dan and Benny in the Ring. Well, I'm very honored to be asked to be on your show, Benny and Dan. And uh, I hope I can provide a little information for the listeners. Well, we, we look forward to it. I'm sure you've got plenty of good stories. Uh, we're going to ask, we, uh, we ask every guest the same first question. We always get some fascinating answers because it's a different story for every person. So it's kind of a two-part question for you, Bob. Uh, when did you first discover professional wrestling and how did you get stung by the wrestling bug? Do you remember what it is that made you fall in love with wrestling? I remember the date i remember the location and uh it was in clinton arena 1958 probably before you were born but uh not me i was seven years <laughs> I, I was seven years old and my father was a new york state athletic commission ringside physician he was licensed by the commission to do boxing and wrestling matches so at the age of seven he brought me to the show and I don't recall being accompanied by anybody. I think he, he put me in the audience. He could probably do that with a seven-year-old kid in those days. And he would sit next to the ring. Uh, in those days, the doctor and the judges and timekeeper had their chairs right next to the ring. So I was watching this show, and I remember almost bursting out in tears. I, I had a lump in my throat, and I was fighting the tears because I thought these guys were actually killing each other. And, and I remember they used to do a thing where the one guy would get on his knees and beg for mercy while the other wrestler would ask the crowd, should he punch him or not? And I, I was so emotional about it. I, I just, that's what I remember. At any rate, at some point during the show, I had to use the, the restroom. 
So I went down to my father, who was at ringside, and told him. And he said, okay. And I thought he would uh, bring me to a, a men's room. But instead, he brings me into the dressing room where the wrestlers were. And all of a sudden, all these guys who I just thought were getting killed and injured, they're all walking around just being normal. I, I, I don't recall uh, you know, anything beyond feeling tremendous relief. And at that exact moment, I, I said, well, they're not really getting hurt. And I just fell in love with it. So uh, that's how, how it began. And Don Luce, who you may know, he's a wrestling historian, one of the top two or three in the world, I'm sure. And he sent me a listing of the Clinton Arena events in that August of 1958. And they had two shows. One was headlined by Luces. The other was headlined by Gorgeous George. So the first show I went to, you could see why you'd fall in love with it when you see people of that caliber. It, and adding, even even a non-wrestling fan would enjoy a Gorgeous George or Luthez match, that's for sure. Absolutely. So uh, after that, the uh, uh, city of Utica built a big auditorium in 1960, and that's where they started holding the matches. So even at the age of uh, 10, 11 years old, my father would bring me, and it wouldn't be just uh, going and sitting and watching the matches, which would have been fine and interesting, but I was, my father would bring me into the first aid room where he would examine the wrestlers. And so I got to meet them all. I, I still have pictures of Dick Beyer when he wrestled long before he was the destroyer, destroyer yeah. and, and Hans Schmidt. And these fellows, you know, I'd ask for their autographs, take their pictures. And they were all real nice to me. They all liked my father. He was awfully uh, good to them. Um, so uh, I just grew up around it and became a collector partly because when I wouldn't be able to go to the matches, say it was a school night or something like that, sometimes they wouldn't let me, uh, my father would always bring home like a, an autographed picture or uh, an autographed program, something like this. And those little mementos meant something to me. So as I got older, that just stayed. And, and now I have a collection that I have so much, I can't even display it, you know, but, uh, and, and the other I, thing is my father being a doctor, he was the old time doctor that uh, they did everything. They took your appendix out, took your tonsils out, delivered your babies, made house calls. So he wasn't home a lot. He was always working. So besides the wrestling, it was time I had with my father. And uh, so a lot of sentimental uh, attachments to uh, professional wrestling for me. Now, now you got me curious, Dr. Bob, because... Um, you know, I read in uh, in uh, Tim Hornbaker's great book about Buddy Rogers. I think there was some controversy about because Buddy Rogers had claimed that he had a heart attack a couple of weeks before he wrestled Bruno at the Garden. Uh, what what was the level of detail that a, a physical involved before the match? Well, it, it was it was pretty pretty basic. Uh, as I recall, it was you know blood pressure. I think a heart rate. I think my father listened to their chest, uh, you know, lung and heart sounds. And uh, I think he put them on the scale. If there was anything beyond that, I, I can't remember. But I know the wrestlers, because uh, at least one of them has told me, that they all like coming to Utica because my father treated them so well. So if they had an ear infection or anything else, he would 
he would go out of his way to try to take care of them. I remember once even one wrestler uh, telling my father about problems his wife was having. And I think my father even wrote a prescription for her, not ever having seen her, but he knew the, the diagnosis from the symptoms. So, so they like coming to Utica for that, excuse me, that reason. And uh, uh, so the physical wasn't, wasn't that involved. Okay. You, you told me offline that, uh, that wrestling actually in some way uh, led to a career in the healing arts. Was that because of your dad or were there reasons besides that? It wasn't because of my father. Uh, it, what what it happened was I fell in love with uh, wrestling, as I said, and my father used to let me sometimes bring a friend with me. Uh, you know, they would come in with us to the uh, dressing rooms and the first aid room. And one of the friends was a fellow. He's a medical doctor now in Rochester, New York, named Cliff Amaduri. And he is a ringside physician himself now for the State Athletic Commission. He does boxing, mixed martial arts, wrestling events. Uh, so we grew up together. And, and it, when we were 10, 11, 12 years old, we said, wow, we've got to be wrestlers. We want to be wrestlers. You know? So we would talk to the wrestlers and then about how to become a wrestler. And this one wrestler, uh, you may or may not know the name, but he uh, wrestled for Pedro Martinez as the great Mephisto. Now, there were several Mephistos over the years, but uh, his real name was uh, uh, Chuck Fish. And he also wrestled as Chuck Bruce, one of the Bruce brothers back in 61, 62. But at any rate, he, uh, he told us he had a massive chest. And at one time before he became a wrestler, he was known as the world's strongest teenager. He could take a deck of cards and tear them into quarters. You know? So, oh, wow. yeah, he was something else. He, and I think he bench pressed all natural as a teenager, something like 500 pounds. He was something. Uh, he was from Chicago. At any rate, uh, he told us, he said, well, boys, you want to become wrestlers. You know, you got to get muscles. You got to get big. So he would tell us about weightlifting, uh, how to lift weights and what to do and all. So, of course, you know, that Christmas, I had to ask my parents for a weight set, and which I got. And it just so my friend did the same thing. So we would work out all the time. Uh, and so then we got into to be more interested in weightlifting and powerlifting than wrestling, you know. But I still had the goal of, you know, and this is from a teenage perspective. I had a goal. Well, I'll win the Mr. Universe, Mr. America contest. Then I'll become a pro wrestler similar to uh, uh, Earl Maynard. I don't know if you heard oh, that yeah. name. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was, so, and a lot of bodybuilders became wrestlers, but, but that was my life goal. I said, but, you know, when you're doing the heavy weightlifting and you don't really have a coach, you're trying to do it from uh, magazine articles and things like that. So, you know, we were lifting some pretty heavy weights. My friend cleaned and jerked 350. I deadlifted 500. And this is without any wraps or these body uh, suits that they have now that add significant poundage to your lift. So anyways, I ended up hurting my back. And uh, so the wrestling career was, was out the window then. Uh, Mr. America contest out the window then too. But uh, so once I hurt my back, I started reading my father's medical books about injuries and how the muscles work and how they get hurt and what you do to help them. And uh, so I developed an interest. So when I was thinking about what to do, I said, I'd like to do something like that. So I uh, 
found out the, about the profession of physical therapy, and that's what I majored in in college. Uh, and then after college, I worked several years in Florida as a therapist, and I met a chiropractor, and I watched him in his office one afternoon, and I said, you know, this is something I'd really like to do too. So I went back to school and became a chiropractor as well. But, but if it weren't for trying to be a wrestler, I never would have had the interest or knowledge in the human body uh, getting hurt and how to help it. So you became interested in bodybuilding, right? It's, I'm trying to do the timeline. It had to be right during the, the, the time when Arnold Schwarzenegger became a, a, you know, a renowned bodybuilder, correct? Well, yes. Um, I remember when he entered the Mr. Universe contest, I think he was 19 years old, and that was maybe 66, 67. My father actually took me. I got so interested in bodybuilding. He took me in 1964 down to Brooklyn, New York, where they had the IFBB uh, Mr. Universe and Mr. Olympia contest. So I was there when Larry Scott won that. And uh, he, he, was the, I think he, was, he was the first one, right, I think? Larry Scott. He was the first, first Mr. Olympia, and he came back and defended it one more time, and then he okay. he retired. Yeah, boy, you got a good knowledge of body. And then, yeah, I think it was Sergio Oliva after that, wasn't it? Or <clears throat> yeah, I remember seeing Sergio Oliva in the lobby at that contest, either '64 or '65. He wasn't competing. I, I saw him compete in '66, but in '64, '65, he was just uh, a spectator. But he he had the skin tight shirt on. And his arms are just unbelievable. And he got much bigger later years, but he was, he was really something to see. But I will tell you this, the year that he competed against Larry Scott, I think it might've been 66, Larry Scott, even though he might've been physically smaller than Oliva, by the way, Oliva played a wrestler in a, in a Mexican movie. <laughs> uh, yeah. But anyways, uh, when they were standing next to each other on the podium, even though Scott might've been physically smaller, he stood out. It was something about his charisma, his uh, tan, something. I mean, you didn't even notice any of the other fellows on the stage, Chuck Sipes or Harold Poole. Uh, Scott was the man. He, he dominated everybody. Um, and and Her if you know the name Harold Poole from bodybuilding, uh, he was <laughs> IFBB, Mr. America. Mr. <laughs> okay. he, 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 he wrestled for a short time. He wrestled as Prince Poole from Tahiti. And uh, somebody told me that he was very good, but after six months, he says, how come I'm not the champion or something? And I said, it takes time. And he said, well, I don't have that kind of time. So he, he quit wrestling. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. You talk about uh, <clears throat> the winnings, <clears throat> you know, the Mr. Olympia and all, I was just watching something the other day and they talked about, uh, you mentioned Schwarzenegger and his first win in as Mr. Olympia in 1970. Uh, it, it came up because they had interviewed uh, uh, Esabeg, Big, Big Ramey, who won the la last year. And his prize for the 2021 was $400,000. Huh. And wow. they said uh, when, in 1970, when Arnold Schwarzenegger won his first Mr. Olympia, hit the grand prize was a thousand bucks. Wow. <laughs> Well, well, I tell you, when Larry Scott won it, I believe that's what what it was too—a thousand dollars in the crown. You know? Yep. But. Yeah. So it was funny to think, you know, and and winning a thousand dollars in bodybuilding was 
you know, that was unheard of. Like na- nowadays, I mean, you get minor competitions on the beach here where I live and the, the grand prize is 2,500, you know? Wow. I didn't know that. Uh, <laughs> wait, wait, well, to me, you know, what killed bodybuilding for me, my interest in it was when the drugs just got so pervasive. I, I just had no yeah. interest at that point. I, I give, I give all the credit in the world to uh, Jay Cutler, who's kind of the, the beginning of the end for the just insane. I don't want to say freakish, but you know, when, when it became almost unnaturally unwatchable and he's, he's since he's retired, he's admitted that he's, he blames himself for that because he was the first year that bulk won out over definition. And he's like, he, he's like, you know, I look at these guys today and it's, it's my fault. And I give him credit for that. Uh, Well, I I didn't know he said that, but I, I give him credit too. tell you a quick story. My father, when I was a teenager in bodybuilding, I, I used to talk about the steroids. I'd read about it, even like magazines like Time Magazine or Newsweek had stories about these steroids and the bodybuilders and athletes were using. And I never wanted to use it, but my father heard me talk about it. One day, I remember he came home from the office and he, he said to me, listen, I hear you talking all about these steroids. And he says, you want to take them? Here they are. He gave me a bottle of something called Anivar. And he says, but I ask you to do one thing for me before you take them. And he gave me the literature that came with it, the medical literature, the side effects, et cetera. He says, read this first, and you want to take it, here they are. And he gave me the bottle of pills. I could, and I remember running up to my room, and I read all about the, the drug. And I remember even at, I don't know, 15, 16, I said to myself, who in their right mind would take this stuff that take chances with their health like this? And I never took a pill. I sat on my dresser for until I went to college. And I often wonder, I said, I wonder if he thought I was dumb enough to take them, but at least he could supervise me or whether he thought I had enough good sense to not take them. Uh, but either way, I, I, he's probably wise to take the path he did, you know. The, you know, obviously we, we talked, but to kind of, steer back to the topic you, you chose the medical field um is your vocation but you said uh, you was what seven years old you said that, that wrestling's been your passion um kind of expand on that a bit like your involvement with professional wrestling you you, you talked about uh, your big collection but you've also worked as a promoter historian administrator why don't you kind of give us a, a a rundown of your involvement with the professional wrestling, wrestling industry well um I can tell you this, my friend, Dr. Hamaduri and I, when we were, again, 12, 13, something like this, we said, we should, we should make a, make our own wrestling program, our own publication. So we said we would do that. We we said, we're going to make a program and sell it in front of the auditorium when they have the wrestling shows. And so we came up with something. It was a eight and a half by 11 uh, inch paper fold it over and we went, actually went to a printer and we had it printed up and everything and we said well we're going to sell it for 10 cents because Pedro Martinez sold his program for 25 cents on the inside and my father said he said you kids can't go selling things you got to get a permit from the city to sell from the city sidewalks so I did I went down to the city hall and they gave me a permit to sell wrestling programs in front of the auditorium so anyways the night of the show came that we we're going to sell our first program and we're out in front and they were selling pretty good. 
And so somebody comes out from the auditorium and says, you, you can't sell these boys. We got an agreement with the people who sell the program inside. And I said, well, I got a permit. It tells me I can do it. And uh, they said, well, we're sorry. And, I, and if I recall correctly, it's a little vague, but I think they had a, like a policeman come and tell us, no, you got to leave. So I know my father, he wasn't happy with how that worked. So he went to the mayor's office. He said, what are you giving permits out when you're not going to honor them? And the mayor said to him, he says, hey, your boy shouldn't be selling things on the street anyways. And so they had a disagreement over that. But uh, so that started. I always wanted to do something because I used to love these magazines. You get every magazine that came out, Wrestling Review, Boxing Illustrated, Ring, Ring Wrestling. So I want to do something in publishing. And that was our first attempt. Uh, and then let's see, when I was in college, I didn't have a lot of uh, time or involvement with wrestling. I go to some shows. Um, but uh, when I got out, I was working, and it was 1984 or 5, and I was treating a patient. And I said to this lady, I said, oh, what'd you do this weekend? And she said, oh, she says, uh, our, my family and another family, we went down to New Jersey uh, to the Meadowlands for wrestling. I said, wait a second, you and another family went all the way, you know, five, six hour trip to watch wrestling. We had very little wrestling in Utica at that time. And she says, yeah, we love it. So I got the idea. I said, wait a second, people are traveling that far for wrestling. I said, maybe I can find a way to bring it to Utica. So I contacted uh, Vern Gagne from the uh, AWA. And uh, I worked with a fellow, I'm sure you know him, maybe you've had him on your show. Fellow him Gary Juster. You know Gary? The name sounds very familiar. No, oh, he hasn't been on the show. He, he ran, yeah, he ran, you know, set up things for Vern Gagne's group. But anyway, so, uh, so 1985, we, we had a show. We, I got some... Uh, business people together and we put up the money uh, and we didn't have TV. I mean, we didn't know what we were doing, but, but uh, we didn't have a, a TV. AW is on ESPN, but no local TV. At any rate, uh, we had the show and we, it was a great show. We had main event with Nick Bockwinkle against Rick Martell for the title. And I've got to tell you, several people told me that was like the best live match they've ever seen. Um, these guys, we had, you know, we lost money on the deal. We, we drew 1500 people, but they, they performed like they were in front of 15,000 people. They, I just have so much respect. And I got to know both Martell and Bachwinkle years later with the pro wrestling hall of fame, but they, they did so great for us. Now I'll tell you who we had in the semi-main event. We had, uh, the Freebirds, uh, Michael Hayes and Buddy Roberts against Scott Hall and Kern Henning. And that brought the house down too. Those guys were doing, you know, the flying head scissors and just, you know, great, great uh, matches, matches. And then the other matches, uh, we had Larry Sharp and the midgets and a woman uh, match. So I got into promotion, but, you know, we lost money. So uh, we tried to work with Vern again, but it didn't work out. So a year later, I still had the idea I, I, I could promote wrestling and be, if not profitable, at least break even, you know? So uh, I had an independent show. It was much harder to run those shows then than it is now in New York State. But at any rate, we had a show and I got a licensed promoter. And he got uh, uh, a main event of Tony Atlas 
uh, who was still big at that time, uh, Tony Atlas versus Dr. D. David Schultz. And uh, we did about $1,100, uh, or 1,100 uh, fans, rather. And so we lost money again. But it was a great show, and I got to meet David Schultz, who um, I don't know what he thinks of me or considers me, but I consider him uh, one of my closest friends in the world. I mean, I just love the guy. Um, so just, just meeting David through that event was well worth any money lost. Uh, so that was my promotional career all the time. Of course, I'm still trying to collect and, uh, look for rest. Uh, every time we went on a family vacation, the kids knew that we were going to visit every used bookstore and antique shop that might have wrestling items. <laughs> uh, Dr. Bob, how did you get involved with the, uh, the first, uh, pro wrestling hall of fame? Did you know Tony uh, Volano? through the uh, New York State, State Athletic Commission? No, no, I, w- I was not on the commission at that point. Um, I can tell you exactly where I heard about it and what I thought. I, I was reading The Observer, now this Dave Meltzer's uh, newspaper there, and it must have been 1998, 1999, and he had a little uh, couple sentence mention. He said, uh, a man in Schenectady, New York, by the name of Tony Volano, uh, just received a charter or will be starting a professional wrestling hall of fame. And I remember exactly what I thought. I said, this guy doesn't have a chance. He doesn't know what he's up against. Doesn't know what he's in for. I had never heard of him. And over the years, over my you know lifetime, when I'd read wrestling review, there was always talk about, Oh, they're going to make a wrestling hall of fame. There's a big article once uh, about the, Wrestling Hall of Fame that was going to be started in Ocala, Florida, by a fellow who wrestled as the Mighty Jumble, and and the way the article spoke was, you know, they had the financing, they were going to have the Jim Londis room, and but none, nothing ever came to be of any of these these ideas. So I just figured, there's no way this guy is going to make it. But I figured anybody willing to give it a try. And lives that close. I'm about hour, 15 minutes from Schenectady. I said, I'll contact them and see if I can help. After three, four months, he'll realize can't be done. And uh, that'll be that. Maybe we can have some fun in the interim. Well, I contacted Tony. And uh, I, I just didn't know what tenacity, what uh, abilities he had to make this thing happen. I mean, it's, I consider him like the pro wrestling hall of fame genius, you know, um, every early on, I remember once he called me and he told me some problem they had run into. And in my mind, it was insurmountable. And I remember even, uh, thinking, I said, well, that's it. The hall of fame can't make it. This was like in the first year, just can't, can't get through this. So, uh, we hung up the phone. Anyways, three or four days later, Tony calls me and he says, he said, Bob, I need you to do this. Or, uh, somebody wanted me to do something. I said, Tony, I said, what, what happened with this other problem? And I didn't even remember what the problem was or what the solution was, but he had told me what he had done to get around it. <laughs> and I just was so impressed. It never would have occurred to me to do whatever he did. 
And it's, it was like that with everything, every obstacle in our way. He would find a way around it, above it, below it, or through it. And uh, he just he just made it happen. I mean, a lot of us put a lot of effort in and all, but without Tony as the, the uh, guiding uh, light, so to speak, it never would have happened. And I, I, I told him once, and I, I think I mentioned it from the podium at one of the induction dinners, I said, I, I put in a lot of time, effort, and money, <clears throat> excuse me, into the Hall of Fame. I said, but it never bothers me how much I, I do for them. Because whatever I'm doing, I know Tony Villano's doing 10 times as much. And that's just how it was. Um, he knew how, I, I, it, it, there, there was one point, uh, I don't know, maybe it was 10 years in or so. He said to me, he said, Bob, he said, would you ever want to consider being the president, taking over? I said, Tony, I said, two things prevent me from doing that. One is I don't have the time. I had my own practice and everything. I said, I don't have the time and I don't have the talent. I said, the talent I see that you have is he knew how to deal with every type of person, every classification of person. I mean, he knew how to deal with the politicians, the local business people, um, the, the wrestlers, the building contractors, the fans, somehow he made a connection with all of them that they understood. And uh, I, I, I know I couldn't have done that. Uh, so uh, that's how I got involved with Tony. And, and didn't he, uh, was very innocent. I, th- I think I heard him say that uh, he was at a bar or something because when he was uh, on the athletic commission and uh, he was in a bar with George Steele. And, uh, you know, I guess he was having a great goose martini and maybe George Steele was uh, chewing on a turnbuckle or something like that. And uh, I think, didn't he, I think he very innocently asked, like, you know, if, if they had a Hall of Fame or, you know, where was the Hall of Fame? And George told him that, you know, that there wasn't any and he, he couldn't believe it. And that's what got the wheels. You know, it's funny how just a casual conversation and look what it's evolved to. That, well, that's exactly what happened. Uh, and Steele, he was... Uh... Uh, very instrumental in helping get credibility for the hall because he would have contacts where he could call Bruno Sammartino. He could call uh, Vergagna. I mean, he could call these people and he'd tell them, hey, these, this is a real thing. These people are all volunteers. They're not making a cent off this stuff. And we're really here to honor wrestlers. And coming from him, it, it meant a lot. So the wrestlers sure. would come sure. on board. And, you know, one thing I'm very proud of, you know, they, they, uh, you can ask Tony, but I'm, I'm pretty sure. I mean, I'm a hundred percent sure. We, we never paid anybody, uh, to come to the inductions. We paid the transportation their meals, of course, but they were there to honor the other wrestlers. And some of them gave speeches when they would give their acceptance speech were just, you know, heartwarming. I, I remember Harley race. He, he was so sincerely, uh, grateful for, for the award. He said something to the effect of, uh, he said, you know, he says, if you guys ever need anything I can do for you, just don't hesitate to call me. And, you know, the next day he came to the hall and he bought like a hundred dollars worth of t-shirts and things like that. Uh, and, and this, this was repeated many times. It's just the first one that came to mind. But, uh, so we were very, very proud of, uh, what was accomplished. And as I say, I'm proud of my contribution, but there's only one person that, you know, he really deserves the credit is Tony. Yeah, nobody else I know of could have coordinated something like that. 
well, <clears throat> you know, uh, <laughs> Benny and I, we, we've talked a lot. Uh, we both had positions in the past, government, you know, finance, whatever, and things like you know, organization, charts, procedures, graphs, tables. I mean, I, I interviewed today uh, as part of, well, not interviewed, but, but part of an, an, an analyst position. You know, they, they were looking at, at creating some new tables, and I had to kind of present ideas and various things. Um, you, you know, switching over to the new International Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame, if you could describe the infrastructure as well as the process for prospective inductees, you know, is there is there a database? Is there some kind of idea? Um, you were at one point chairman of the selection committee. So maybe what were your duties and responsibilities in that position? And how did you guys kind of make that those choices? Well, um, I can speak to the uh protocols for the uh, induction process of the uh, new uh, Hall of Fame group, that's what I developed. Um, I, I was helpful in developing them for the PWHF, but I also have to give credit to many other people at input, especially a uh, man named Bob Oates from California. He's a lawyer as well as a CPA. And so a lot of the legal how the wording would be legally and stuff. He was very instrumental in helping. Uh, and I served as the PWHF selection committee chairman, I'll say three, four, five times. I can't remember the exact number over the 15, 16 years. And the rules we had were really good. They were, you know, fair, legitimate. We tried to take every contingency into effect, but over time I could see, Oh, gee, what if this happened? What if, uh, uh, inductee died before the induction. What do we do? I mean, there's this number of little things that um, I could see maybe could be improved on. So, but that's only through experience. No other Hall of Fame had ever done it like that before. We we're trying to do it totally legitimately, not favoritism, not a, a board selecting who's going to go in. We wanted the experts in wrestling, including the wrestlers. That was one of our goals to have wrestlers. So, so on my, on the committee we had for the PWHF, I always tried to make it, um, the, the people who voted for the, uh, on the ballot, half wrestlers, half historians. Uh, I thought that was a good balance, but anyway, the wrestlers really appreciate it. And I remember Nick Bockwinkle saying to be chosen by your peers for this is really quite an honor, but anyway, to get back to the IPWHF, when they asked me to develop these rules, uh, for their group, they had a, a little different, um, uh, requirements because remember they're the international professional wrestling hall of fame. And so they wanted, and I wanted to make it. So there was equal representation from North American wrestlers, as well as wrestlers from all other areas of the world. So the rules had to be very specific to make sure the entire world was encompassed. And it took me months and months and months. And that was after all the years of working on it with the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. And you can go to their website and they have it, um, you know, listed there, the, the, the rules. It's about 15 pages long. We try to take every possible uh, event or contingency into effect. Uh, and, and the other thing with the PWHF, we always worry with the ballot. What if all deceased wrestlers get inducted? We're not going to have anybody there to accept the award, you know, and who's living. 
Uh, but with this, I made the category such that there had to be living people uh, inducted every year. We have three separate uh, categories, you know, pre-1925, post-1925, deceased, and then living. Uh, I don't want to get too complicated, but you can look it up on the website. And I think it's, I, I, I felt very, uh, very good about how it came out. Uh, and the decision the first year uh, was to not have a separate category for women or tag teams or midgets. Let the wrestlers with their own merit, whatever their gender was, or whatever status of the tag team was, they could compete. They'll be on the same ballot. But the first year, even though we had women on the ballot, nobody was, no woman was inducted. So one of the members of my committee said to me, he says, you know, we got to face the facts that wrestling has always been mainly one man against another man. If we want women to be recognized, we have to make the women's category, which is what we did the second year. Um, so uh, what we do is uh, how I set it up was, so you mentioned the selection committee. The selection committee was with the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. What the IPWHF calls it is the uh, ballot committee. Uh, that's what the regulations I worked up. But at any rate, um, uh, we, we had five people on, the, on my committee. I did it the first two years. And I wrote in the rules, you can own, uh, a ballot committee chairman can only serve maximum of two one-year consecutive terms. Uh, I wanted to put that in to make sure that nobody got too comfortable in the position. We wanted as much input from a wide variety of people as possible. I think you get a better uh, overall over time, better selection of, of candidates and better process. But on my committee of five people, I had Koji Yamamoto from Japan. I had Jimmy Wheeler from England. I had Dr. Nathan Hayton from Canada. And I had Mark Hewitt from the United States, all top historians in the world. I, I felt privileged that they even wanted to be on my committee, you know? Uh, so I did that two years and now, so my term would be up, was up. So Mark Hewitt, uh, he has his committee and he's working on the ballot now. Once the ballot is formulated from the committee, then it gets approval by the board of directors. And then it goes out to um, 40 people on what we call a voting pool. And what I did, I tried to recruit every wrestling expert I knew of or heard of or people recommended to me to, to be voters. Uh, we have people like Scott Teal, Mike Chapman, I mean, top names in the wrestling history business. So uh, that's, that's how we did it. I, I think uh, it's, it's developed. The first two classes were, were wonderful. Uh, we're very glad Dory Funk was able to come and be the first living inductee to receive his ring last year or this earlier this year. So that's that process. You know, just, just listening to all that, it's so diametrically opposed to, you know, I, I'm on a gazillion wrestling pages on social media, which sometimes is a curse but you know th there's the endless debates uh, about who you know is so and so going in this year to the hall of fame the wwe hall of fame i'm thinking like what do, what are they going into you know <laughs> there's, there's no building there's no, there's no election i mean there's there's 
it's all really to me it's all it was at least in the mind of uh vince mcmahon and um it, it's so subjective and he, what you described it, it's it seems so fair and so documented and um so i mean that's i guess that's more of a comment but what i really want i mean I'm, what i was trying to get to is just to have you uh tell us about the actual uh physical facility you have where it's located and is it open to the public what hours is it open well, that that wouldn't be my department, actually. That's, uh, you know, the Board of Trustees could tell you that. But it's the, the facility is located within the MVP arena in Albany, New York. Um, I actually have not been there yet. Um, uh, I, I got there uh, a different time than it was open during the induction weekend. But people have said they, they like the facility very much. It shows uh, a lot of ring-worn gear and uh, action photos and posters. So I think it's a nice place to visit. Uh, as far as I know, it, it's right now it's open during certain events. Like I saw that they had an event, the wrestling event uh, a week or so ago, and the wrestlers came and visited the, uh, the facilities. Uh, and I think the public was, was, it was open to the public as well. So I don't know what their, their schedule is or will be but uh, I'm sure their Facebook page will will mention that. Changing uh, course for a bit, you wrote a piece entitled Belts Can Speak If We Will Only Listen on the Slam Wrestling website. Great read, by the way. I'm going to hype that up. Slam Wrestling, uh, if belts can speak, if we will only listen, anyone out there, you should go check it out. Uh, the history of the Pacific Coast Heavyweight Wrestling Championship. Uh, we recently had uh, Jim Phillips, friend of the show, another author. He does our territory talk segments with us on. And the last episode of, uh, we did was on the San Francisco territory and, you know, Joe Malkowitz. Um, to think about how many belts like that exist around the country, it's, it's really mind boggling. I know here, uh, I live outside of Norfolk, they, just like, you know, uh, mid-atlantic virginia there's there's all a handful of of old titles that have been floating around for a long time do you plan on writing any more articles like this uh looking into other territories other as you as you said you know belts that need that have stories to, to tell well I, I i don't plan on i i guess i was excited about that because it it was my belt uh i, I actually obtained it through the malkovich family and so I, I wanted to do as much research on it as I could. I'm very, very, it's of all the physical possessions I own in the world. I mean, other than, you know, my family, if it comes bad as a possession or something, I mean, of all inanimate objects that I, I own, that belt means more to me than anything. I, I give up everything else I own to keep that belt. And part of the reason is that it was Joe Malkovich's world title belt when he won it in 1926 uh, with the uh, Paul Bowser promotion. And Joe Malkovich, I don't know if you're aware of this, but he was originally from my hometown of Utica, New York. And uh, his brother, John Malkovich, was a medical doctor and colleague and friend of my father's. And I remember we were walking to church one day, and my father says, I was like 10, 11 years old. My father says, oh, wait, wait, here, I want you to meet somebody. So who was walking down the street going to church to was... John Malkovich, Joe's brother. And so my father said, oh, uh, Dr. Malkovich, my, my son, he loves wrestling. 
So Dr. Malkovich started telling me, he said, oh, he says, you know, I have two brothers, Joe and Frank. They're both professional wrestlers. And I remember him talking to me about him. And in my little 10-year-old mind, I'm thinking, well, I never heard of him. It can't be that good. <laughs> I said uh, to myself, I said, well, Gorgeous George, they're the big wrestlers. You know, I just had no clue. And then I think back now, I probably at that time could have asked, or my father could have asked John Malkovich, oh, can can your brother Joe send some memorabilia out, you know, to my son? And uh, of course, it was uh, I never never crossed my mind at that time. But yeah, John Malkovich was a doctor here in Utica. And about um, oh, 15, 20 years ago, maybe when the internet, I first got on the internet, I said, I wonder if Joe Malkovich has any children or relatives out in California. And so I looked up Malkovich, the name in California, and there was one uh, uh, name that came up, Paul Malkovich. And he lived, I think, Walnut Beach or uh, anyway. Um, so I, I got the number and I called him. And somebody answered. I said, is Paul Malkovich there? He said, this is Paul Malkovich. And I said, well, I said, I'm calling from Utica, New York. I'm a big uh, wrestling collector and I'm very interested in things related to the Malkovich family uh, about wrestling. And I, when I, he didn't say a word. I would give him a chance. So I just kept talking. And after, I don't know, it seemed like five, ten minutes, I, I just figured, well, he probably thinks I'm a nut. <laughs> he may be right, but I said, he probably thinks I'm a nut. And so I'm just going to be quiet and see what he says. So I stopped talking and he said to me, he goes, I, I can't believe this. I, I can't believe you're calling me. He says, I haven't thought about wrestling in you know, 50 years or something. He said, and, and now you're calling me about this. And we were on the phone, I'd say an hour and a half, two hours talking about all the old days and things. So at the end of the call, he said, well, what can I do for you? What can I do to help you? And I said, well, I said, all I would ask you is this. If your family has any wrestling memorabilia, especially if it relates to Utica or Joe Malkovich, I said, and you ever want to sell it, I says, please contact me. I'll make you a good offer on it. And this is what he said to me. He, by the way, Paul was a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. Very, very intelligent, accomplished man. And he said to me, he says, listen, I'm going to do better than that. I'm going to send you Joe Malkovich's personal scrapbook. Uh, I think it was the first scrapbook he ever kept of himself, or maybe his family kept it of him, with all these clippings. And he, he sent me this. To me, it's a treasure. It's first articles of him in the Utica newspapers. He had original cartoon drawings. I mean, he must have gone to the paper and asked for the originals. Of, of him as a wrestler. And then there was an ink blotter in there of uh, uh, Joe Malkovich versus Strangler Lewis for the undisputed title in Boston at the big uh, baseball park. And just on treasures like this, I, I mean, how do you thank somebody like that, you know? Uh, and so I developed a friendship with him over the phone. I never met him, he's passed away now. But uh, I, I talked to other members of his family too, and they're the most generous giving people and, and Paul told me a story once. He said, he said Bob, I'm going to be sending you something. And uh, I said, well, listen, Paul, i got to pay you. I, can't, I just can't take things from you. He said, no, no, no. These things started in Utica. I'm going to have them end up in Utica. But anyways, he told me that when uh, uh, 
Joe passed away in, I think, like the early 60s. And his wife, Emma, passed away, I think, in the late 1990s. Anyway, they were extremely wealthy people. Uh, they had no children. And Emma left everything, all the, their worldly possessions, to the University of San Francisco. Um, one of their wrestlers, Tom, a guy named Tom Rice, he became a lawyer at, at the University of San Francisco. But anyways, um, so she probably knew him and figured it was a good organization as a Jesuit college, I believe. So she gave everything to them. Well, anyways, about a year later, Paul told me that they got a letter from the University of San Francisco stating that uh, there were a few things that they couldn't use in their collection. Or, and if the family wanted them, they could come down at a certain time and, and pick them up. So they went and went down. He said one of the things they picked up that the university was going to dispose of if they didn't pick it up was the NWA World Tag Team title that the Sharp Brothers held forever and was also held by everybody from Buddy Rogers to Killer Kowalski to uh, Gene Dubuque. I mean, on and on and on, and a list of wrestlers who held that. And it's like a, a, it's like a three-foot-high trophy. Half of it's brass, beautifully made. Anyway, she said, I'm going to send this to you. <laughs> I said, Paul, I said, i got to pay you. And uh, he said, no, 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 I'm sending so he sends me this trophy. It's, I think I weighed it. I think it's like 20 pounds, 25 pounds. It's big and heavy. Anyways, so I saw, saw the postage was like $100. So I called him. I said, Paul, let me just pay you the postage anyway. And I talked him into that. But then what I did, you know, I just couldn't accept it. So I found restaurants around San Francisco. I got gift certificates and I sent it to him. I said, here, have some nights out on me. But that's the, that's the kind of family these Malkovich people were and are. And I remember uh, Lou says in his book, Autobiography Hooker, he mentions Joe Malkovich, and he said, what a wonderful promoter. And if I'm not mistaken, he said uh, Sam Muchnick and Joe Malkovich were the most honest promoters <laughs> he ever dealt with. So uh, he said when, if, Joe, if a wrestler showed up at Joe Malkovich's show, but the match was canceled for some reason, Joe would still pay the wrestler. So that's, that's one of the reasons I'm so proud to have his, his belt. That's awesome. I mean, you hear horror stories today of people getting stiff to, to think that even back then he was doing right by the talent. That's good to see. Yeah. I hope I'm not getting too far off course. With no, no, answers. you're fine. <laughs> if we can steer back to getting back to the, the hall for a minute, um, other than obviously the inductions and you talked about the, the women's category and, and some of the specialty categories you have <clears throat> supplement, they, they have supplemental awards, the Excelsior and Rocky Johnson medal of uh, medal of medal. Um, how did this come about? And if you could talk about the first, I mean, you really can't talk about the Excelsior Award without the first Excelsior Award winner, who was Andy Kaufman. Uh, I'd love to hear that story. Well, I, I tell you, I, you may be, I may not be the best person to talk to about it. I was involved with the IPWHF mainly on the wrestling induction protocol um, portion. The uh, Board of directors would decide who would do these other things. All I cared about was that we had a process that I said would be legitimate, fair, and transparent. We want everybody to see how it was, was handled and how it was done. The, the other awards I just really can't, can't speak to. Um, 
as I say, I was concerned with the induction itself, the legitimacy of it. Now, Dr. Bob, Dan would be very disappointed because never a nary an episode goes by without me because I'm a huge baseball fan, you know, dropping some kind of baseball reference. So I don't want to disappoint him. And um, if you could, I mean, how far are you geographically from Cooperstown, number one? And number two, what would you say, I mean, just the the, the methodology of induction, I, I know it's a little bit different than, the, you know, than, than Cooperstown, but are there any similarities and, and what are the differences between the, whole, the two halls of fame? Uh, well, I, when, when I first started uh, working on the protocols for the original PWHF uh, induction rules, I tried to find out what Cooperstown did and what the other sports hall of fame did. But my conclusion was then and continues to be now through the protocols developed for the current Hall of Fame, was that I think the wrestling should be more along the lines of the Academy Awards than, the, than a sports Hall of Fame. I, I'll give you an example. Like they wanted originally at the uh, Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, some people wanted, well, they should, the wrestler should be retired for five years. I guess in other sports, they have a retirement. Uh, requirement. <laughs> That's a, that'd be and impossible I, with wrestling, though, right? Yeah, so that was one of the things I successfully argued uh, for was that no, they, you got to do it the lifetime. And Fred Blassie was showing up in a wheelchair, you know, at ringside. Uh, and right. Jackie Fargo was getting in the ring at 70, you know. Rick, so, Rick Flair so, would never be eligible. That, that's right, yeah. And then there was, with the original Hall of Fame, uh, I think we had an age requirement. We, we, I guess the compromise was, well, make it so they're 50 years old. Uh, and then they also had, and, and I could go with that, but with this new one, I, I didn't make any age requirement. I, I said, you know, if they made significant contributions to wrestling, that should be adequate. There, it shouldn't be based on age at all that they have. And, and, and what if they passed away before they were 50? You know, let them honor them in their lifetime if they deserve it. So, uh, so that was one of the things. Um, um, uh, that, that's all I can think of off the top of my head. But there were there were um, factors like that that we we took into consideration. Oh, and the other thing is when I developed these protocols and uh, submitted them to the IPWHF board of directors, I told them this. I said, "Listen, I said I don't want this to." be voted on and have a majority of the uh, directors approve it. I want everyone to approve it. I, if it's not unanimous, I don't want to do it. I said, any problem anybody has with anything, we should settle it now, figure it out now. And, and they were all agreeable to it. And there were a few people that brought up uh, certain uh, questions about specific things. I can't recall the specifics now, but there was, a, and once I explained to them why it was done that way and, and nothing against them, but they would have no knowledge that I had been 15 years with the other hall of fame and spent a lot of time developing these. So there was a rationale for everything. And I wanted to make sure I could defend the rationale because if people started criticizing what the induction was or how it was uh, carried out, I could say, this is why. And I want to have a defense. People could accept it or uh, not accept it, but I didn't want to be defenseless if, if that occurred, you know. Um, 
So, and so ultimately, you know, they all, all agreed and uh, I, I'm very happy they did. I think it's, uh, I'm not saying that somebody couldn't develop something better, but I haven't seen anything better yet. And of course, I'm biased. I mean, take it for what it's worth. <laughs> so far, so far, so good, though. Well, speaking I, of- I, I'm very happy with how the results have turned out. Um, and, and, and the wrestling community, uh, historian community, who's basically who I have contact with, uh, they seem to, you know, I'm not getting any objections or anything like that. People are saying, who, why this or why that? Uh, they seem to be happy with the with the choices, and and who's making the choices too. So, well, speaking of you know, you, you talk about stuff that's top notch. The the website, I mean, the the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame website is so much information, merchandise, donation opportunities, and it's just a lot of good information on there. But uh, please, if you could, kind of tell our listeners two, two things. One. Uh, tell them a little more about uh, where they can go to learn more on the International Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame. And two, we talked a lot tonight about induction. Is there any fa- any any method for fan nominations or anything like that? Well, I'll, I'll start with your second uh, question because I've probably already forgotten the first one. <laughs> but but uh, it's, I, what I recommended to people. Uh, who've contacted me, I said, if you email Mark Hewitt, now this year's ballot is already, I think, in the process of being approved. So it wouldn't apply to this, this current year that's coming up. We had, I I built in guidelines, how many months before the induction, the ballot has to be completed, et cetera. We didn't want to wait till the last minute to do it. And we wanted to make sure everything was had plenty of time to do it. So, so for the 2023 induction, it, it would be too late. But uh, if you contact the whoever will be the ballot committee chairman after Mark, or Mark may do it again, I don't know. But uh, just email them um, and uh, just say, this is who I'd like you to consider. And I'm sure the ballot committee would consider that person. I know when I was contacted over the years with the other Hall of Fame and with this one, if somebody had a, an idea, I would listen to it. Um, but, but you do have to remember that the people on the committee, uh, the five member committee that I mentioned, we had people from all over the world and, and these were the best people. I mean, they could, uh, talk rings around me in terms of wrestling history. So so fan nominations are good and we encourage it, but, um, I I don't think somebody's going to persuade somebody who's who's not going to be on the forefront of somebody's mind. Let's put it that way. Um, but no, I think involvement by fans uh, is, is very important and good. And, and your first question was what? The, <laughs> the uh, uh, where can, if you mind telling the listeners where they can learn more about the international professional wrestling hall of fame, because your website's top notch, but is there more information out there they can look for? Well, they have uh uh, uh, Facebook page. And I noticed that they were putting up, which I thought was a good idea, biographies of the inductees. Uh, they make a program every year. I don't know if you've seen it. Well, the first two years they have a program. It's, uh, edited by a fellow in, um, Scotland named Bradley Craig. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he runs a Scotland wrestling hall of fame. And by trade, he's an architect but he's quite a wrestling historian as well. And he edited it. And 
uh, they, they are very scholarly articles. A wrestling historian would really enjoy the, the program. I, was, I felt privileged that uh, I was able to uh, write biographies on uh, Tom Jenkins and William Muldoon for those first two, to be among people like Mike Chapman, who was writing, and Mark Hewitt, et cetera. So, uh, th- but those biographies that are in the program, they're starting to put them up on the website, so you can learn more about those wrestlers that way. Uh, I, I guess the Facebook page and the website would be the main main ways of, of learning more about it, events that might be coming up, uh, et cetera. Well, Bob, we, you know, we appreciate your time. You've really, I mean, a lot of cool stories, a lot of good details, the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. You guys have done such great work. Benny, as we wrap up tonight, any final thoughts or questions? I, you know, again, as as an ex-government employee myself and just, you know, I, I worked on organizational charts and processes and procedures and things like that. And just to know that there's a there's a true wrestling Hall of Fame with a, a physical structure that, you know, I, I, I that has that has voting and, and, you know, and processes as opposed to, you know, Vince McMahon holding his thumb up or down. And, you know, just very arbitrary. And, it, and it, you know, this Hall of Fame actually seems to give equal weight to folks in the past, as opposed to, you know, every once in a while, uh, the WWE will throw a crumb to, a, you know, a, an old school wrestler and induct them as a legacy with a, you know, with a bunch of other wrestlers that, you know, mo- most of the younger fans have never heard of. And, and, and this, this Hall of Fame gives those people equal treatment. So I absolutely love that. I, I appreciate you saying that, Benny. That was totally by design, and it was also from what we learned from the first Hall of Fame, uh, how to make sure to get the old-timers in. That's why the pre-1925 category, it's not when they were born pre-1925. It was their career had to end by 1925. So you're guaranteed every year to get wrestlers that may have ended their career in 1890, you know, or 1900. And so I say I... I'm very proud of, of what was accomplished with that. And uh, I think they've produced two good classes and I have no doubt whatsoever that Mark Hewitt will produce another class, great class of wrestlers. Well, Bob, again, uh, I can't, I, I really feel you know, be this drum. I can't thank you enough for all your time. Um, before we let you go for the night, any, any final thoughts, anything you want to promote or put out there? Oh boy, uh, I, I, I didn't, didn't think about that, but I appreciate the opportunity. I had I had written down some stories, uh, but uh, I, I, I'll just tell you one one quick one. Yes, talked about road stories, and I don't really have a lot of road stories. The only wrestler I've traveled with a lot was David Schultz, going to autograph shows, things like that. But I remember once uh, I had to bring Killer Kowalski from Utica to Syracuse the airport. He was flying out and I had never spent any real time with him. So I'm driving him to the airport and I'm asking him, I said, tell him the killer, tell me about Buddy Rogers. And he'd tell me a story about Buddy Rogers. I said, tell me about what happened with Yukon Eric after he lost his ear, you know? And he would tell me, so. and about halfway through the trip, Kowalski looks at me and says, Bob, am I boring you? <laughs> I says, Killer, I says, 
this is what I live for here in these stories. So, but, uh, and from all accounts, he was a real, you know, the, the total antithesis of what you saw in the ring. He was a true gentleman, wasn't he? He was, yes, he was, uh, I thought a wonderful human being. He was in my house once and then he used to come to the pro wrestling hall of fame a lot and just couldn't have been nicer to the fans, whatever they wanted. You know, he studied to be a priest at one time. He was a very religious person. Um, he was a vegetarian. Um, yeah. And he did, he did a signing for us at the pro wrestling hall of fame. I think he was 84 years old, if I'm not mistaken, Tony could tell you better, but I think he was 84, and, he, and he, I think he passed away later that year. But wonderful guy, yes. Um, and, he was and a, he, he, a machine in he the said, ring, too. He, he said to me, yeah, if you look at those old films of him, geez, he's six foot seven, jumping off the top rope and all. Oh, yeah. And he said to me, I remember when we got to Syracuse Airport, we're walking around, and he says, Bob, he says, touch your finger to your shoulder. So I touched my index finger to the same shoulder. And he says, now watch me do it. And he couldn't move his elbow beyond 90 degrees. He couldn't touch his shoulder. Mm. And he was telling me about the different injuries he had. You know, it, take, it took its toll. But he said to me, he says, you know, he says, if I had to do it all over again, I would do it. He says, I travel the world, every country, or not every country, but he traveled the major places in the world. He said, six, seven times I've been around the world. I said, never paid a dime. I saw everything. And so he was very happy with his life. And, you know, it's nice when somebody older says that, even though they had physical problems. Right. Wow. Very nice. Well, Bob, uh, we appreciate all the time. Again, I reiterate the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. Great website. You've got a lot of good uh, stories out there. I talked about the, the if belts could talk. Uh, you know, again, um, I feel, feel like I've, I can't stress this enough. Thank you for your time. I know you're busy, man. You've got a lot of good stuff going on and I, we appreciate the stories. And again, thank you so much. Uh, when, when everything gets uploaded, we'll, uh, we'll have Benny reach out to you and we'll definitely look at probably having you on again. And, and I mean it, this was an honor to be asked. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Have a great evening. You too. Bye now. Bye-bye. You know, it's funny, Benny, you, you, the word Hall of Famer is one of those terms like legend that seems to get thrown around a lot. So it's nice to actually see a real Hall of Fame. And like you said, an actual Hall of Fame you can go to and touch stuff and not just click through some links on WWE.com with, you know, uh, Snoop Dogg on the same page as Bobo Brazil. And uh, it just I, I, I keep going back to the fact that people actually have to vote for this. And, you yeah. know. And it's a wide selection of people and wrestlers, historians all over the world. Yeah. And, and like he said, where they, they actually had to debate uh, rules for admittance, not just, um, you know, I hate to keep beating the, the, the beating the horse on the WWE Hall of Fame. But but Drew like Drew Carey made technically one appearance in the Royal Rumble, which was more of a comedy spot. And and he's he's a Hall of Famer before demolition or before you know before Ivan Koloff yeah be, Koloff Bruno. Bruno he uh even um like like we talked about with Dominic and uh, Dominic Danucci I mean there's so much talent out there if it had been a voting process it, the Hall of Fame would look a lot different but absolutely 
Here we are. And you know what, Benny? We wrap up episode 99. Uh, next week, episode 100, our big, I, I hate to say anniversary show. That, that sounds cliche, but we've got a, a huge show coming up. We're going to talk to a real legend in the business. And here we are, you know, I, as I said, when we started this show a couple years back now, the, the average life expectancy of a sports and entertainment podcast is three episodes and single digit listens. And we have, you know, thousands of people, thousands of people on the page. It's active. We get downloads all over the country and here we are pushing episode 100. So I think we're doing all right for ourselves. I, I think Montel Vontavious Porter said something like big things are popping and little things are dropping or something like that. Or, or maybe that was a hooker friend of mine. I'm not quite, it was, it was one of them that said that, but yeah, we just, you know, keeps getting better well, and better. No, I, I mean, not, not a, not bad for something that started with a couple of friends, you know, couple of microphones and a laptop so here and we Dominic are Dominic Danucci calling me a smart ass and <laughs> <laughs> hey any anything we can get where where uh you got your, your own nicknames from Dominic Danucci we get shout outs from Jimmy Valiant and we had Ivan Putsky sing to us I think we're doing all right absolutely it's been a blast so for oh uh I I guess I kind of buried the lead on that one but next week Benny who who do we have next week the uh, world's strongest man, Ken Patera. Absolutely. What a what an honor that's going to be to interview as, him. As somebody who's been a fan of wrestling, bodybuilding, power, strongman competitions, he's checked every box of things I grew up as a fan of. So he is, is, yeah, as real of a deal as it comes. Exactly. I'm as, as giddy as they can be, I say. So for the BS Express himself, Benny Scala, I'm Dan Spash Channel. Have a good night, everyone, and we will see you next time we're in the ring.